especially on this Good Friday. What does it mean that Jesus bore our shame on the cross? That the cross was not only painful and wrong, but especially shameful. The shame that he bore was not some abstract theological construct. It was born literally in that very gruesome way in which he was executed. Uh, God comes and enters into our shame literally in the very physicality of a crucifixion. It is God who says, I'm not going to let anything, I'm not going to let anything come between you and me. Nothing. Not even your shame. And I'm going to enter into it, join you there, and ask you to pay attention to me, right? When we're all in the cauldron of shame together, I want you to pay more attention to me now than you're paying attention to your shame. When he looks at the thief and says, today, today, you're with, I'm with you. He looks at all of them and says, like, today, like, I am with you. Even in the deepest, darkest recess where your shame wants to hide out, that's where I am. Good Friday is all about shame being dissolved because God won't let himself, won't let that stand between him and us. In the beginning, God killed animals and covered Adam and Eve's nakedness and shame. And in the fullness of time, God laid the wrath of his justice on his own son in order to cover all of our shame forever. And so it's, it's the grace of shame to cause us to know our sin, to know our nakedness, and, to, and that drives us to the cross of Jesus in order to despise the shame of, of confessing our sins, dealing with our sins, owning our sin, in Christ. It's actually a blessing. So, so this is one way in which we embrace shame. We welcome shame. We say, wherever I've sinned, show me, expose it so that I can run to Jesus so that he can cover it. And recognizing that he endured shame for our sin. The first application of all this is the straightforward invitation to have your shame covered by Jesus. Unless Jesus covers you, you have no part with him. Jesus has white robes. He has white robes for everyone who comes to him, but you must come to him. This invitation is for all sinners and all sin. And it is particularly for the sins and the filth that you think cannot be covered. So take it to him. He's waiting outside the camp. He's there for you. But in order to do that, you have to recognize that you have that shame. You have to go to him. That's where he is. He's out there where all the shameful stuff is. And he's out there where all the shameful stuff is is because that's where your shameful stuff is. So go to him. The second application is that whatever Jesus has covered with his blood and righteousness is utterly and completely blameless. If you have been covered in the blood of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus, then you are completely blameless. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? If you've been covered in Jesus, then none of it sticks. All the real stuff was paid for, all the false stuff bounces off because you're covered in the blood and righteousness of Jesus. The exhortation is fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who went to the cross, despising the shame, despising the shame of being falsely accused and despising the shame of bearing your sin, despising it all. Fix your eyes on him. Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped, a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry, teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc. to scripture. Our focus is 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
I am your host, Melba Toast. May this episode bless you and bring glory to God. Hello, ladies, and welcome back to another episode of Thoroughly Equipped. So glad you could join me for it. And if you are new, welcome. Okay, so I really did think that I could present a decent look at what Dr. Kurt Thompson teaches in simply two episodes. Why I thought that would be possible with 47 pages of quotes from his book, Anatomy of the Soul, along with I don't know, countless hours of um, watching YouTube videos and listening to his podcast. I really, I don't know how I thought that was possible. So I spent weeks going through all of my research and typed up a transcript that ended up being about 30 pages long. And so that's why I added two more episodes to this analysis of Dr. Thompson's teachings. We are going to continue to look at how Dr. Kurt Thompson integrates psychology with Christianity. I want to show you how doing this has a tendency to change Christian doctrine and can end up leading to a different gospel. For the last episode, I presented the bulk of Thompson's teachings through what he states were the five points of his book, The Anatomy of the Soul. 1. That we all long for goodness and beauty. 2. Data from neurobiology points us to the world we long for. 3. That same data, the neurobiological data, quote, reflects and energizes the biblical narrative, and as such, it changes our very experience with God if we are willing to pay attention to it and do what the data asks us to do, end quote. 4. Quote, a crucial element of implementing this data is completely dependent upon human beings engaging the process and practice of being known, end quote. And five, quote, growth only occurs in the context of community, end quote. So basically, Thompson wants people to know that neurobiological data points us to a world of goodness and beauty and that we all long for goodness and beauty. A crucial element of implementing this data that points us to goodness and beauty is dependent upon human beings being known and growing in community. In essence, he's saying that for us to produce goodness and beauty in the world, we must be in relationship with God, in which we are feeling known by God through being known by others. When we feel we are known by others, we feel known by God, and in that feeling, we'll love God in return, and in acting out this love for God, because we feel known by God through others, we will make the world a better place. In fact, we will be helping God redeem the world. I also presented to you how Thompson psychoanalyzes the fall to make shame the antecedent to not only Adam and Eve's sin, but humanity's as well. Shame is what evil uses to destroy and devour. This is our problem. Listen to this clip from his presentation at a conference held at the Center for Faith and Work back in 2016. So if we look at the biblical narrative, we would suggest that shame is not just an artifact. If you look at the research on shame, shame is just talked about like it's a virus. It happens to be in the universe. It just happens to be this thing that happens to be there. The biblical narrative, I would suggest, suggests otherwise. It suggests that shame is actually the primary vector that evil uses 
to destroy the entire creation. It is that emotional element of everything that we call sin. I would suggest that when we read the biblical narrative and look at Genesis chapter 3, that the experience of shame actually shows up before anybody eats any fruit. It is that which evil wields all day, every day, and most of where it is active is not in these large moments of traumatic event. Most of these moments happen dozens and dozens of times all day, every day, in small statements that I say to myself, like, I should have done this, I should have done that. I wasn't good enough at this. I wasn't good enough at that. And like, I don't need to tell you, like the list goes on. And we are so busy doing this, we don't even know that we're doing it. We even repeat these things to ourselves non-verbally, right? 60 to 90% of all human communication is given and received non-verbally. If that's the case, I don't even need language to live shame into my practiced life. Imagine the degree to which this is having an impact on our vocational creativity. From a biblical perspective, we would say then that shame is important because evil is really serious about not just making us feel bad, evil really is serious about dismantling the entire created endeavor that God is about. See, Thompson believes that shame is the, quote, emotional element of everything we call sin, end quote. Instead of our desires being the root of sin, shame is the, quote, vector that evil uses to destroy creation, end quote. And shame is so ingrained in us, we don't even notice it. So here's the question then. How are we saved from shame? What does Thompson believe Jesus' role is in all of this? What was the purpose for the cross? What is the gospel according to Thompson? That is what we're going to look at in this episode. And to help me present this to you, I have asked my wonderful husband to play Dr. Thompson as he will read the quotes from his book, Anatomy of the Soul. So let's dive in. Let's look at what Dr. Thompson teaches about Jesus the cross and ultimately what he teaches about the gospel. To Dr. Thompson, Jesus is the ultimate example of a human who lived with an infinitely secure attachment to the Father, which enabled him to do all that he did. While on earth, Jesus lived as one with the Father, with an infinitely secure attachment to him. Jesus was able to trust the Father with his life, even if that led to death. With that much confidence in his relationship with God, it is no wonder Jesus was so free of anxiety that he was able to do all that he did. Heal, turn tables, speak with wisdom and conviction, calm stormy weather, withstand torture, and snuff out the sting of death through the power of his own death and resurrection. Anatomy of the Soul, page 139. While Jesus acted on his confidence in his relationship with the Father, Thompson suggests that what was at the heart of what we see in the ministry of Jesus is his deep awareness that God's fundamental orientation towards humanity is one of deep compassion and affection, affection that is prone to outlandish behavior, which persuades and urges impatience to partner with him in the task of blessing the earth. Thompson uses Jesus' baptism in John 1, 32-33 to expound on Jesus' awareness of God's great compassion. What if this is a story that rings with subtle yet clear tones the melody that Yahweh is a God who, from the earliest moments of Jesus' awareness of him, 
is, by his very nature, pleased with him. That before Jesus even began to behave in a pleasing manner, he sensed the presence of God, and that presence was dominated by a sense of God's pleasure with him. What if, from his earliest days on the planet, Jesus was deeply aware that God's fundamental orientation towards his entire creation, humans especially, was one of deep, compassionate affection? What if he sensed that the Father was prone to outlandish behavior such as taking the ridiculous risk of persuading and urging rather than forcing us to love and sacrifice, patiently waiting for us for millennia to partner with him in the task of blessing the earth and all of its peoples? Anatomy of the Soul, page 141. To Thompson, Jesus' behavior was a response to the deep awareness of God's great pleasure. What if Jesus' life was first and foremost a response to his acute awareness of Yahweh's affection, to the depth of being known and loved by his Father? In this sense, the progression is reversed. Jesus' behavior follows God's pleasure. First, before anything, God is infinitely pleased. He's just that kind of God to begin with. And then Jesus responds with behavior that was reflective of one who is supremely confident that he is infinitely loved by God. In this sense, as he grew, Jesus increased in his awareness of God's pleasure. He did not simply grow in what he knew about God, but in his felt awareness of God's pleasure with him, God's joy in Jesus' presence. Jesus' life was living, breathing, fearless response to his experience of a God who continuously pays attention to his creation and takes great joy in its presence. Anatomy of the Soul, page 144. Jesus was the Son of God who always felt and understood the love of the Father. It was in his brain integration of being fully known by God that motivated and directed the life choices of Jesus. It was what caused Jesus to do great things and go to the cross. It is no wonder, given his immersion in the life of this kind of God, that from Jesus would emerge the Sermon on the Mount, the multiple healings, the longing and weeping over Jerusalem, the crimson sweat of Gethsemane, the journey to Golgotha, and his ultimate trust in God's vindication that came with the brilliance of a Sunday morning. Anatomy of the Soul Page 145. If we merely believed as Jesus did, would we not live better? If we lived as if we believed this was true, would we too not be free from anxiety and fear? Would we not be comforted? Would we not feel deeply cared for and protected? Yet as a consequence, would we not seek justice and peace? Would we not rather give generously than hoard? Would we not be more patient with our spouses? Would we not be better behaved, parents of our sons and daughters' baseball and soccer games? Would we not remember the Sabbath more often and live less harried, less frenzied lives? Would we not be more creative in our handling of punishment for criminals and third world debt? Anatomy of the Soul, page 145. Now notice what Thompson does not include in the works of Jesus, and that is obedience to the law perfectly. There is absolutely no talk of this in Thompson's teachings, at least any teachings that I have seen, and I have watched and read a lot. I believe this is because being known by God is not connected to his commands, but to Thompson is directly connected to being self-assured of God being with us and Jesus' love over us despite our sins. 
In fact, he believes that the narrative of the Bible is, quote, ultimately one of Emmanuel, God with us. God is present and connected in the face of our resistance and our terror. Jesus loves us in the quagmires of shame and desolation that we have created, end quote. Anatomy of the Soul, page 111. So, in essence, Jesus was the perfect example of a human who was fully and at all times aware of God's great pleasure in him. This example of Jesus is our example of renewing our mind, which Thompson equates with brain integration. That if we too are felt known by God by being known by others, we will react in this awareness and make better choices. Choices that will come from an integrated mind. Now, there is a certain truth to what Thompson states here. For believers, God is pleased with us, but only through Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly, obeying all of God's commandments, as he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Matthew five seventeen to 20 In fact, I believe that this type of teaching from Thompson and even others at the If Gathering and the If Ministry teach as if the law was abolished, put an end to. Their lack of turning to the law as the revelation of God's character and righteousness as our guide on how to love God and love neighbor reveals their belief of the law's purpose in the life of a believer. They abolish it by not teaching it as a necessity to Christian sanctification, but instead try to encourage righteousness by self-esteem through God's love and forgiveness. If the cross is not first and foremost the payment for our sins that propitiates the wrath of God against an evil people, but is mainly a display of Jesus' great love and great forgiveness, then the law can simply be abolished because God is loving and forgiving. And that is exactly where Thompson goes when he looks at Jesus' work on the cross, that ultimately it was a display of Jesus' mentalizing his executioners, asking that God forgive as he absorbs all that evil can throw at him, acknowledging sin and crushing it. And as Christ is our example of how one lives by being known by God, Jesus' death is an example of how we acknowledge the pain and offense of sin and promise never to repeat the behavior. Ultimately, the cross was an example of confession, repentance, and forgiveness. From the cross, he still speaks into the darkness of evil, confident that he is heard by a father who is mindful and responsive to him, despite evidence to the contrary. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Luke 23:34. He knows what these men don't. He is mindful and centered, completely integrated at the level of his prefrontal cortex. At the height of his suffering, at the point at which he was most likely to lose his mind, Jesus' mind remains clear, mentalizing his executioners and extending to them what they most desperately needed, forgiveness. There is no forgiveness without measurable action being taken. Indeed, at the cross, before God says yes to new creation, new life, new minds, he says no to evil. At Jesus' death, evil throws everything it has left in its arsenal at God and is found wanting. With the words, it is finished, into your hands I commit my spirit, Jesus absorbs the worst that darkness can offer and extinguishes it. God acknowledges the awfulness of sin and disintegrated mindlessness and then crushes its head. 
This illustrates that the process of repair requires us to confront the reality of the wound that has taken place. This includes naming the offense, what someone did or failed to do, acknowledging that it has caused pain to the one offended, and pledging to work to never repeat the behavior. In the language of faith, we describe this maneuver of repair as confession and repentance, the act of turning around and going in the opposite direction, not merely feeling regret for having done something wrong. In so doing, we are saying no to mindlessness and yes to deeper, richer, more integrated lives intra and interpersonally. Simple enough on the surface to confess and repent. Anatomy of the Soul, page 225. Thompson relates here that, quote, there is no forgiveness without measurable action being taken, end quote. Well, what was the action that God was performing for the forgiveness of our sins? saying no to evil. Evil throws everything it has left in its arsenal. Jesus absorbs it and extinguishes it while God acknowledges it and crushes it. Jesus reveals to us the perfect mindfulness and immense suffering and complete trust in God while he shows the world what it means to sacrifice oneself for what one believes. Thompson makes the cross an illustration of how we confess and repent the, quote, reality of the wound that has taken place, end quote. And when we acknowledge the offense and plead to work to never repeat the behavior, we are in essence like God through Christ on the cross, who said no to mindlessness and yes to deeper, richer, more integrated lives. It is like the Christian mystics, an example of how one should live. The cross is not the historical account of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God for the propitiation of the sins of God's people in this account. This completely rejects Hebrews as it talks of the cross as the perfect sacrifice for the cleansing of sins. Instead, Thompson suggests that Hebrews is expressing how Jesus scorns shame by not paying attention to it. As we saw in the last episode, To Thompson, shame is the antecedent of sin. It brings about sinful behavior. And Jesus shows us at the cross how one should scorn shame. This is what we are called to do. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews gives us a glimpse of what Jesus did with shame and what we are invited to do as a result. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12.2. Jesus does nothing less than scorn, despise, or ignore, or as another translation puts it, shame. He chooses to acknowledge, then disregard it, paying no attention to it, so he may pay attention to something else, the joy of sitting next to his Father. We too are called to identify, confess, shame, so as to be aware of its presence and then ignore it turning our attention to the joy of being with the Father, the one who tells us that we are his sons and daughters, and that he is deeply pleased that we are on earth. Anatomy of the Soul, page 230. Let's take a look at this Hebrews passage for ourselves and see if it is instructing us to scorn shame by being aware of it and then ignoring it. In Hebrews 11, the writer talks about what it means to live by faith after reminding the readers of the purpose for the institution of the priest, the temple, and the sacrifice, and its connection to the great covenant made by God to Abraham, that there would be a Messiah who would pay the ultimate sacrifice for God's people and would be the prophet, priest, and king. 
In it, he gives examples of the great fathers of the faith and how they continually looked to this promise of God, a promise they did not receive, verse 39, but were looking forward to. These are the great cloud of witnesses to us of men who strived and trusted in the promise of God. They are our example of what it means to live by faith. This is where we will pick up in the text at chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Notice that Thompson changes the text here and quotes it as saying the sin that easily distracts us. But back to the text. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12, 1-11 This portion of Hebrews is reminding us to endure in this great race, to persevere and cast off our sins, that our struggles, struggles against our sin, struggles that come in perseverance, struggles that come in trials, persecutions, and tribulations, these are nothing compared to what Christ endured, who went to the cross to reconcile us to God by bearing our sin and putting an end to its shame. The writer reminds us that even in our struggle against sin, we have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. We are exhorted to know that instead of the, these earthly struggles leading to no hope, they are our Heavenly Father's discipline. And this discipline, the discipline of our bodies to resist sin, the discipline that comes from trials and persecutions, is for our good, making us holy and righteous. This is very far removed. From what Thompson is saying. Like the opening clip I played for you, Thompson teaches that Jesus understands our shame and accepts us as we are even in the shame. Thompson's teaching on what it meant for Christ to bear our shame is an insufficient one as it does not help us conquer sin, nor will it cause us to cast out the shame the world wants to impose on us because we do not sin like they do. It only makes Jesus an empathizer and not a conqueror. For us to truly be rid of shame, we must have all our sins washed, 
and have a righteousness that will never bring about shame, making us clothed before God. If we are clothed in his righteousness, then anything that happens in this world will be like my mom says, water off a duck's back. (laughs) I love you, mom. Thompson's good news here is just simply inadequate. Since Jesus felt shame yet rejected it to be an example of a person who is perfectly mindful of his connection with God, Jesus accomplished this through his integration of his prefrontal cortex. He calls us to do likewise through the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. With God's resurrection of Jesus from the dead, Jesus' ascension to his place as Lord of this world and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God has released the power to integrate our prefrontal cortexes. These new neural networks reflect and point to the new heaven and earth that will reach their culmination in the appearance of Jesus, but whose shadowy forerunning is already emerging in our lives. Anatomy of the Soul, page 170. Now that we have grasped what Thompson teaches on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, what is the gospel according to Thompson? As we saw in the previous episode, he teaches that the fall was an outcome of the shame Eve felt through the lies of the serpent, leading her to be tempted to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, so she could satisfy the shame of believing that she is not good enough for God. Instead of resting in the relationship she had with God, she chose to eat the fruit to buy, quote, the right to acquisition to forever working to obtain and hoard enough so that she will eventually be enough, end quote. So to Thompson, our sins are a result of the working to obtain and hoard enough so we feel that we are enough. The solution to this is to go to the beginning. This is where the good news starts that God made everything good and was intimate with his creation. God hits the mark every time. In the language of attachment, our Heavenly Father mentalizes at peak capacity. He lovingly senses and interprets our feelings, desires, and intentions at all times. This is not to suggest that we are not sinful or wicked, for indeed we are. I suggest that this often is not a very helpful place to begin. The place to begin is the beginning, and in the beginning... God was and is pleased. What if we begin to pay attention to God's mentalization of us on his terms? Anatomy of the Soul, page 147. Thompson wants us to be drawn to God's love first and foremost, proclaiming that God is pleased with us, always mentalizing us, lovingly sensing and interpreting our feelings, desires, and intentions at all times. In this, he is not wrathful against these desires and intentions, No, he is understanding and loving towards us. He is well-pleased with us, just like he was well-pleased with Jesus. If only we would know this truth like Jesus knew this truth. If only we were feeling the pleasure God feels towards us, we would live in love towards others. The gospel message of the New Testament is this. God, in his relentless, dangerous, and immeasurable joyful love for his creation, has made Jesus King and Lord of the universe. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he extinguished the power of fear and shame, death, and ushered in a newly created order of justice and mercy. This new kingdom will reach its culmination for all creation with the bodily appearance of Jesus when he creates, reveals, and draws together the new heaven and new earth. In the meantime, we are to be about the business of living under his rule, practicing who and what we will be when his kingdom arrives in its fullness. What would life be like for us 
if we not only assented to this message, but imagine this declaration is true. Imagine that the gospel is not primarily about a set of facts, although facts are involved. That it is not all about meeting the right behavioral standards. Rather, the gospel is the declaration of the reality of relationship. A declaration that we are to be known. That the physical world is to be known. That God is to be known. Anatomy of the Soul, page 221. Quote, The gospel message of the New Testament is this. God, in his relentless, dangerous, and immeasurably joyful love for his creation, has made Jesus King and Lord of the universe. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he extinguished the power of fear and shame, death, and ushered in a newly created order of justice and mercy. End quote. This is not the gospel. It is a Christian mystic gospel mixed with progressive social gospel in psychological terms. The gospel to Thompson is about relationship, a realization of the relationship we all have with God, and one that we can all access by being more like Jesus. What does it mean to believe in this gospel, to believe that God has made us to know him and be known by him? It means to live as Jesus lived in perfect attention to the Father's voice and emotional state, who effectively reinforced his awareness of God's love for him. To believe is to be living, as if the gospel is true. It means living as if relationship is here and now, ever pressing in to be known and to know. The good news is that Jesus has shown us this new way to be human. By truly embracing what he heard the Father say, You are my Son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased, Jesus was able to avoid the pitfall into which even Adam had run headlong. In essence, by paying attention to the mental representations of the memory of hearing his father's voice and the emotional state that was simultaneously activated, Jesus effectively reinforced his awareness of God's love for him. Jesus imagined, mindfully felt, his father's love for him and made choices because he believed that love was true. Even when his good friend Peter denounced Jesus' prediction of his own death, Matthew 16, 21-23, and Mark 8, 31-33, or in Gethsemane, where Jesus' tortured mind was wetted against the cold darkness of his accuser, still trying to convince Jesus that he, like Eve, wasn't enough, and that God was no more interested in being faithful to Jesus than he had been to her. Anatomy of the Soul, page 221. Okay, yes, the gospel itself is not about right behavioral standards, but our sin problem is. Our disease, our nature is one that continually transgresses the right behavioral standards. Dr. Kurt Thompson completely rejects that God's goodness requires right judgment and punishment to those who transgress the law. That is our problem, to which the gospel saves us from the wrath to come, the eternal conscious punishment of hell. But again, to Thompson, God is never wrathful. He doesn't hate sin, nor sinners, but loves them immensely and really just wants a relationship with them, wants them to say yes to God by being known by him and say no to shame, the emotional vector by which evil enters in to destroy us. Christ shows us the way to do this by going to the cross and scorning the shame. See, if we have a different understanding of the fallen sin, especially if one chooses to psychoanalyze a text, 
you're going to end up having a different purpose for Jesus. If you have a different purpose for Jesus, you have a different Jesus, and you have a different gospel. Precisely because his work and what he accomplished is what saves us and reconciles us to God. Thompson's psychoanalyzing of Genesis 3 leads him to psychoanalyze Jesus and teach a different gospel. It's a gospel that glorifies man, and when you do that, it becomes a gospel of works. How does it do this? By making the works of God, regeneration, and redemption man's work. That's what we're going to look at in the next TE episode. I hope to show you how Thompson's teachings does this. We are going to look at what he believes and teaches about regeneration, redemption, and the spiritual disciplines and compare it to scripture. Doctrine matters, ladies, and these teachings that Thompson is presenting are not on the outskirts of Christianity. They are entering into churches and women's ministry. They influence popular female teachers, such as Jenny Allen, and others who sit under Christian therapists. Women pick up these books, such as Anatomy of the Soul, and trust that they can learn how to know God and strengthen their soul. I understand that Dr. Kurt Thompson is a psychiatrist. He's not a pastor. He's not a theologian. But people turn to him to heal the soul and learn how they can be known by God. Why is there a need in the church today to integrate psychology with Christianity? Because we believe that scripture is inadequate to inform us of sin, our depravity, and the solution of the gospel? Yes, but I think there is a growing number that not only feels scripture is inadequate, but now actually despise what scripture teaches, so much so that they believe psychology can help it be more palatable. And by integration of such teachings, they give an entirely different gospel. What one teaches about the fall, sin, Jesus, and the cross matters. What we believe about what transpired at the fall will affect what we believe sin is and what it does to this world. And this will affect what we believe Jesus' purpose was, what he set out to accomplish, and what he conquered, why he died, what he is doing now, and what he will do in the future. And what we believe about Jesus' life and purpose will affect what we believe transpired at the cross It will affect the gospel and therefore it will affect our faith and how we live. Because if we are trusting in a different Jesus, if the cross is an example, our faith will not be on a finished work that removes all our sin, guilt, and shame. If the work is not finished, how can we walk in newness of life? Christ put away sin by sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 9.26 so that we would walk by faith in that sacrifice, proclaiming, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 His life and his death is the finished work that cleanses us from all our sin, guilt, and shame. So, Go walk in that truth, ladies. And as you do, I pray that you are in his word. Ladies, if you are interested in the transcript for this episode, you can go to ttew.org. 
You can find other great resources, articles, blogs, and videos that may bless you in your Christian walk, as well as links to follow me on social media. If you wish to contact me, you can email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com. Again, the website address is ttew.org. Thoroughly Equipped is part of Striving for Eternity's Christian podcast community. Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity by assisting Christians to have an eternal perspective on life. They strive to bring evangelism, discipleship, apologetics, and Christian living together for the purpose of eternal preparation by exalting God, edifying and equipping the saints, and evangelizing the lost. They provide speakers, online articles, online courses, books, podcasts, and other theological resources, all centered on God's Word. To find out more, go to strivingforeternity.org. And to listen to other podcasts, go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org. I pray that their resources bless you as they have blessed me as we live our lives day by day, praising and glorifying God.